Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 76 of the Spoiler Cast. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined here by Allie. Tis bad luck to kill a seabird. Vera? Why'd you spill your beans? And Tristan? Don't trust mermaids. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> the Spoiler Cast is your look at uh, something we have watched, played, consumed um, through games, TV, television. Uh, we are going to talk about it in full, spoil the crap out of it, and uh, today's uh, movie is The Lighthouse. So last time we did a movie with Color Out of Space, and we're following it up with another movie. So this is um, the follow-up to The Witch from director Rob Eggers. Um, a, it's, it's defined as a psychological horror film, but I'll, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit as we go, um, starring just two actors, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Um, mm-hmm. Filmed entirely in black and white at a interesting 1.19 by 1 aspect ratio. So a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And I'll, I'll talk about all that from a filmmaker standpoint when we get to it. Um, also just want to say, we may all sound like robots this podcast. Things have been a little funky. Please just bear with us and know that it is temporary at best. I sound beautiful, like yes. always. Yes, I don't know what you're talking about because my mother, the actress, uh, she always taught me that if you're messing up in front of your audience, to never acknowledge it. So I just decided that I wanted to sound like a robot today. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, well, and I am That's, free. <laughs> it, it, it's funny you say that. For anyone... Because that... Well, that... Vera, that is the single biggest takeaway too that I have received from like live performance. Like when when my band plays shows every every once every blue moon, is if you make a mistake, just play it cool. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> and if necessary, you fucked sort of, up if you don't you lean act into like it, it too. Well, for anyone who is discovering this podcast with this episode, Well, I'm just saying that for anyone who is discovering this podcast with this episode, know that any weird audio funkiness is atypical of the rest of the episodes. Yeah. No, good good job, Tristan. You're a good egg. Speaking, uh, speaking of eggs... I don't uh, think Tristan would ever kill a seabird. <laughs> speaking of eggs uh, and seabirds... And seabirds, uh, what has everybody been playing? Let's talk or- about the lighthouse. Yeah. Wait, do we want to get into what we've been playing and playing and watching uh, before we do Lighthouse, though? I'm down to spend a, little, a few minutes on it. That's fine. I'll, I'll timestamp the, the um, thing for when we start talking the Lighthouse. Yay. Cool. And Tara, Can I why start? You, okay. Why don't you get us started? Yeah, and the, the main ways I want to talk is that, like, you know, I, you know, oftentimes I do not... Uh, Play uh, play as many games as I would like, as do all of us. But uh, in the in the meantime, between these two episodes, I actually started playing a game actually with um, Lexi, the the woman I'm seeing at the moment, uh, which is, is that it's a game that had a lot of nostalgia for me, and then the remaster of it is just great. Uh, so has anybody here ever played either originally when it was in the PS or the updated version of Crash Bandicoot Warped? Mm-mm. Oh yeah, both yeah. versions. Yeah, um, I pl- I remembered playing it when I was like a kid in the '90s, and then 
uh, I playing the updated of it, and like when I was here, it was just like I was visiting my godbrother in Brooklyn, and we were just like trying to beat the whole game while I was there for a few days. We almost succeeded at it, and yeah, Lexi and I we just decided to boot it up, and it was funny at first. I was like, oh, this is this is pretty easy, and I guess it was just like you know, it's with a better controller that maybe factor in. This, and then on, like, level three, it's like, oh, no, you sweet summer child. This shit's getting hard. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a challenging, fun platformer. And I, I think one of the things that I like about playing the Crash games, in addition to, like, you know, the remaster's beautiful. Uh, and the graphics look great. Uh, the game... I haven't played it on the PlayStation recently to truly compare, but... I think that um, the gameplay, they, they, I assume they just like poured over the gameplay because it's how I remembered playing it, and and uh, and also the voice acting is fantastic. Uh, but what was the other also cool thing about it is that like I appreciated that Crash as a franchise in terms of platformers is one where there's definitely a lot of platforming things like you know you're jumping and you're moving around etc. But there's also a lot of combat, and I think that uh, the Crash games do uh, have a neat balance with that, where there is actually like a bit more combat than in some other platformers, and I've, I I appreciate, it. and the combat's fun, uh, so I, I appreciated that 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 quite a well that quite a bit when I was playing it. Uh, so yeah, no, it's uh, it's it the and it's yeah it's a part of the cra- like the this remastered Crash collection of the first three games and. Apparently next year they're going to come out with uh, the remaster of the Crash Bandicoot Racing game, which I love that game. That was actually I, I've always liked that more than original Mario Kart. Uh, so that, so yeah, yeah. So just so you know, that's already out. Crash well, I, thought it, I thought already it's already out. Yeah. Oh sweet. How how is the mm-hmm. remaster? It's good. Microtransaction. No, it's 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 fun. I mean, there's I, I've only played a bit of it. Uh, there are microtransactions, like Tristan just noted. No, but I, no. I, I mean, it's an enjoyable, mm-hmm. fun racing game. Yeah. No, I have. So yes, they threw microtransactions into a remaster of a PS1 racing <laughs> game. Oh, this is why we can't. Yeah, have nice this is things. definitely why we can't have nice things. Uh, but no, um, the game, but yeah, no, so that was, so that was a nice, pleasant blast for the past that I definitely enjoyed playing and I'm going to enjoy, enjoy beating it. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's basically all I've done uh, oh, that's Allie, basically with all the games. you, what? uh, before. Oh no, I'm done. So Ali, before this cast started, you had also teased that you were playing something. Uh, yes. So why don't you go next? Baby shark, baby shark, baby shark, baby shark. I've been playing Man Eater. Nice. Started as a baby shark. AKA, AKA uh, Hall and Oats Simulator yeah. 2020. Okay, so have you seen this game, Vera or Dan? Yes. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I think I maybe have heard it a bit a little bit. Explain this to me, Allie. So the premise of the game is you play as a shark. You start the game as a baby shark. Uh, You have a nemesis in the game named Scaly Pete, who's like a uh, reality TV, like, host slash focus. It's like a kind of one of those sort of, like, 
gratuitous, let's look at these weird people doing weird things, and he's a shark hunter. He kills your mama shark and rips you out of your mama shark's belly. What? And bite his hand off. That's how the game starts. Yep. And uh, you grow from a baby shark to a mega shark, and your goal is to eat a lot of things, kill a lot of people, and kill Scaly Pete. And it's great. It's mm-hmm. like, people like to call it a shark PG with elements of GTA, which, like, there aren't really, like, a huge bunch of, like, RPG elements. You, like, unlock three different sort of skin slash equipment for your shark to use, but it's not, like, super in-depth. It's just a fun, goofy time and a power fantasy where you get to be a shark and eat things. And she's beautiful, and I love her, and we stand the bull shark in this house. Is the bull shark her, uh, her, her romance interest? No, she, you play as a bull shark. Oh, okay, cool, cool. It's a girl bull shark that you play as. Nice. Amazing. That, that sounds great. And she's great. beautiful and great. And we love her. I would have, I would have liked if you had other options, like the ability to play as like a tiger shark or a hammerhead. Eh, I mean, it maybe, doesn't. Maybe they'll do that as DLC. Not to be that person, but it doesn't really work considering the setting and considering, like, in terms of shark behaviors, like, yes, we all know the film Jaws and that it's based on real-life shark attacks, but it wasn't a great white in those real shark attacks. It was a bull shark. Like, in terms of sharks you don't want to fuck with, you really don't want to fuck with any of them, but especially a bull shark. Yeah. So I appreciated that. I appreciated that nod to the superiority of bull sharks. Also, it's really satisfying getting to hunt down other sharks, uh, killer whales, barracudas, alligators, and even sperm whales in the later game. Do you get to ever fight the kraken? And also eating lots and lots of people. No. They're all like real animals. No giant squid, though? The kraken is a real animal. No giant squid. The biggest thing you fight is a sperm whale. Like I said, plenty of ch- opportunities for season pass and DLC. I, I like I like the game as it is. I don't think it needs extra thingies like that. It's perfect when the controls want to work right. <laughs> that's that's my only like big complaint about the game is that they have sort of like I'd consider it like a soft lock on button where you like tap R where you use R three to pivot back to a thing that you're fighting, but it's not like a true lock on. Because when the controls work for the game, they work beautifully, and it's like the greatest power fantasy I've ever experienced in a video game. But when they don't work, it's a little frustrating. But, I mean, you get you get what you get. On the box, it says you're a mm-hmm. shark. You play as a shark. There's no bullshit. And it's perfect. What is? What would you... I know you said it's like a shark PG GTA. What game... Is that the game you'd compare it most to, or would you compare yeah. it to another game? Other people, other people have compared it to uh, Destroy All Humans, which okay. I'd say is more appropriate in terms of, like, you get dropped into this sandbox to just fuck with people. Gotcha. How long, <laughs> is, the, actually... how long is the game, then, if all you're doing is, is fucking with people? Uh, yeah. I beat it in two days. As long as you want, you're a shark. <laughs> I beat it in two days in, like, two really long playing sessions, nice. basically. So maybe, like... I don't know, 12 hours. Okay. It's not a long game. There's lots of like little side questy things to do that don't get too busy work E and there's an added kind of funny element to it where since it, the conceit is sort of it's 
kind of from the perspective of like a nature slash weird reality TV show. You have the host of the show, Chris Parnell, like just talking about animals and stuff all over it all the time. And like making some pretty good quips about sharks and whatnot. Nice. Yeah, these days, honestly, I prefer when games are shorter. Like, you know, Crash Bandicoot Warped isn't a super long game. That doesn't sound super long. Tristan, you were, earlier today, you were playing uh, The Wonderful 101, and I was actually shocked to find out how long it, that one was. Um, yeah, it is. Like, like I was saying on or on the chat outside of this, is that that game, that's one of those games that goes on way longer and scales way harder than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So is that is that what you've been playing, or are there other things that you want to talk about? So since our last podcast, I have played through all of Disco Elysium. That game is great. Uh, I finished the Resident Evil Three make. I've just today started up playing uh, Wonderful One Hundred One Remaster. Uh, I figured it's the. It's basically a Saturday morning cartoon as a video game. So I figured, well, I'll do a Saturday morning cast of it. Sure. Um, I have also, because it was 10 bucks, and I'm probably going to greatly regret this decision, uh, have picked up Rainbow Six Siege. Those training missions are bullshit! <laughs> because... So, so, for those of you who don't know, Rainbow Six Siege is typically a 5v5 uh, t- character-based, team-based first-person shooter. Uh, all of the training missions are, it's you versus, like, 15 bots. And you don't get heals. Do you have to um, play those before you can play online? You don't, but it's designed to introduce you to the basic yeah. mechanics of the game. And those training missions are bullshit. Oh my god, there's so much yeah, there's, bullshit. There's I don't know if there's an ongoing discussion, but I've I've often like thought about like what's the best way for these online shoot group like team shooters to train people? Because I recently got back into Overwatch and have been playing a little bit of it with a friend online. And I'm amazed at like how little I remember and how much has changed. And I feel like I'm doing my team a disservice sometimes when I jump in as a character I thought I knew how to play, <laughs> and then it turns out I don't. Yeah, it's uh, the big reason I'm trying to go through it honestly is to get the hang of it, like fine tune like my controller settings and stuff before I start doing anything with actual people. Uh, but it's also a good way to earn. Renown, which is the game's in-game non-premium currency. Mm. I ain't spending anything more in this game than the ten bucks I put down on it. I'm saying that right here and now. I don't give up about skins or season passes or whatever that stupid thing Fortnite introduced of like the season challenge pack things. Yeah, I ain't doing any of that shit. Um, but I'm going through the trainings because they're a good way of earning... Renown, which is the basic in-game currency, which is what you can use to unlock additional characters. You know, it's only a matter of time going back to the, you know, how they've reintroduced microtransactions to old classics that didn't have them. It's only a matter of time before there's a generation of 
of players out there who we're already don't there a time we're already there Dan did you not see the petition for EA to continue paid support for Battlefront 2 I did not we're already there there's already a full-on generation who don't remember a time before microtransactions fuck the games industry fuck those greedy bastards just make games again no, it would, it would be nice. Uh, anything else anybody wanted to? Uh, uh, anything else anybody want to talk about uh, that they've been? It doesn't even have to be a game before we jump in. To so Lighthouse. I, I, w- I will say um, this is something that I started I, rewatching Avatar: The Last Airbender for yeah, like the sixth that sh- time. That show still kicks. How? Finally back on Netflix. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I was wondering why everybody so yeah, was... Yeah, Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, um, I haven't raved about this yet, but, um, on this show, but I've raved about it in other contexts. Uh, if anybody wants to watch Age's thoroughly enjoyable television show, um, The Last Kingdom on Netflix is quite good. Uh, it is essentially, uh, histo- it's, it's, historical fiction set in like the time when the Saxons and the Danes were like fighting for control of England with like a character who's kind of in between them who is just kind of like the manliest character on TV and it's it's just really really nicely done um and and yeah it's like I'm not going to say it is great art but it's it's kind of like Game of Thrones when it was in its good because it's a historical thing it's not fantasy so it's it's different but it's kind of like the vibe I get I think the closest thing would be Game of Thrones when it was in its groove where it wasn't like doing amazing holy shit moments but it also wasn't being terrible if you just want to like watch now four seasons of like good solid stuff of people with swords doing cool shit and also a little bit of history sprinkled in then like this is your show and uh, it is because I found in the quarantine that I've ended up watching a lot of television that I'm kind of meh about. And when the new season came back, this is like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like to watch a television show that I actually hmm. really enjoy. Uh, so when you finish Avatar, you should watch this. But obviously, Avatar is still the best. So if you haven't seen it, watch it. And if you have seen it already, maybe rewatch it because 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 uh, the Zuko arc is perfect. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, I really, the Zuko arc is still one of my favorites. Although, speaking of good things with good character arcs, the final season of She-Ra came out the other week, and that was amazing. I've heard that really Absolutely amazing. slaps. Uh, I basically got into, like, I think the beginning of the it third really season. It really fucking slaps, Barra. Yeah, I got into the beginning of the third season, and it's not the, and I just basically just, my interest fell off, but... I've been hearing people so excited about it that I think I'm just going to power through to get to the last season and what is supposedly, like, just really marquee television. Uh, and, I mean, not even supposedly. I mean, is there, like, a, um, is there like, a 10-second version of what Zuko's arc is, for those that don't know, that doesn't spoil things? or uh, Take it away, Allie. Uh, like... <laughs> I'm, no, I'm just trying to say without spoiling, uh, the best redemption arc in TV ever. Uh, well, that's 
That's high praise. Yeah, I would also... At I, least in children's television that is actually thoughtful and meaningful. Yeah, I, I would say I might even not even caveat just for in children's television because what makes the development of Zuko as a character and what he goes through from that first episode where he's hunting the Avatar in order to get back from exile uh, to where he ends up in the show is a lot of times with redemption arc stuff in other media, they tend to, like, you know... Like, they, you sometimes have, like, the anti-hero problem where, like, in order to make someone, like, gritty and conflicted and gray, they also make them kind of gross. And Zuko, because it's a children's show, but also because it's well-written, um, there is a lot of darkness and conflict, and he even does stuff that is not that is not okay, but he's never gross. And I think that that really helps to see uh, that that also helps. And that's not even to say that he's not a complex character, that the dramatic bits aren't huge, that, like, the growth that he goes through isn't amazing. But I sort of feel like if they were to do, like, Avatar, but for adults, they'd have Zuko doing something gross in order to be like, but he's still bad, but maybe he could still go back to good. And it's just like, eh... Yeah. Well, it, it also helps that he's alongside the just straight-up monster that is his sister. See, I, I, I also thought that you were going to be... See, what I'm I, kidding. I will I'm fight kidding. any Azula... I will fight any Azula defender. That, that wasn't she is my a point, Tristan. That was monster. me asking you to not spoil it. Yeah, I'm not going to go well, any further, but that character is a goddamn monster, but, and I will fight anyone but, who defends but, By the way, though, the this end. is not a spoiler... Another thing that is kind of paired with Zuko um, is also that the person you see from the very first episode alongside him may be, well, maybe the greatest character in the show. I mean, or Zuko's still the best, but the close second is, of course, Uncle Iroh, who is amazing. And yeah, there is there is a certain scene, if you're watching that uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender for the first time, where you will cry. And you'll know what it is when you see it. And yeah, because yeah, uh, uh, but Uncle Iroh is wonderful, and because you won't be able to see it because there'll be tears streaming down your yeah. face. <laughs> yes, there'll exactly. There'll be too many tears in your face. <laughs> Wait, but Dan, have this you? This is se- not the Avatar cast. Wait, have this you is- seen Avatar? Yes. By the way, Dan. <laughs> not a single episode. Oh, so oh boy, oh boy. Um, well, now we know. We'll, now we know what we have to do as soon as uh, social distancing ends. I was just thinking, Dan, Dan could watch. Force Dan to watch Avatar: The Last I Airbender. Mean, F, when social distancing ends, we should politely ask Dan to watch this great show, and then when he's done, we can spoiler cast it. <laughs> I'd be down, or yeah. Do you want me talking for five hours? Because that's how you get me talking for five hours. <laughs> Allie, you talking for five hours is the thing I well, dream about. Well, podcast last three hours, so. <laughs> What's yeah. oh. a couple more hours. Exactly. And if it's like Allie talking most In this years, essay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfection. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, another another thing that I know we're all passionate in different ways about I think is the movie the subject of today's episode 
the lighthouse. Yes. Yes. Um, Very good. Which we give a short intro at the beginning of the show, anyway. Um, and I, so we've a bunch of us have seen it twice, at least twice, right now. And Tristan, you saw it just the once with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to say before we jump into it that this is now only the second movie we've done. The last was Color Out of Space, where we actually watched it as a group. It together. was nice. And I think that's a really good way to to do this because we then get to react to each other on the fly and talk about those reactions on the show. So um, excited about that. Although I think <laughs> if, if what we're going to talk about is any indication, I feel like we didn't have much to say during the screening of this movie. It a lot ca- of us are pretty quiet, myself included. I mean, it's a movie that There's kind a, of takes your breath on, away. Dan, you cannot be faulted for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it was also yeah. a different experience than color, too. Yeah, it's really intense. Like, uh, both, it's, it's yeah. If dub is a psychological horror, I, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I kind of align with that. But that wasn't, I, I guess, my impression while I was watching the movie for some reason. I think the thing with this film, and like a lot of other films, and I'm pretty sure I said it in our very brief post-discussion before we all passed out, because it was like 12.30 when we finished or something, is this film, I feel like, falls into the... it, It gets sort of saddled with the issue of, well, what happened? What's the meaning? Like... You know, there's a plethora of videos on YouTube being like the real meaning behind the lighthouse or the dummy's guide to the lighthouse. What was it actually about? And it's like sometimes for films, you just kind of you can just kind of have your own interpretation of it. And it doesn't need a solid. This is what happened from point A to point Z. And I really appreciated it about that, because if you look at it on the surface level, it's just oh, two guys go crazy and end up killing each other in this lighthouse. So, but... Uh, oh, sorry, go on, Allie. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, I kind of feel like, you know, you can kind of read it whatever way you like, either super in-depth or not, and that's kind of the beauty of the film itself, and of film in general, I find, a lot of times, is not everything needs to be <sighs> overly explained. If that makes sense. So uh, she I, says as she does a podcast where they spoil the shit out of this movie. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I think your point is taken. And I think that uh, it's definitely seems to be a feature and not a bug of Robert Eggers oeuvre, if you will, um, in terms because, you know, his previous film, The Witch, which is his first one. This is his, his second one. And uh, by the way, I am all very much standing Robert Eggers because like New England themed horror shit, horror stuff with the like historical utilizing our rich history is perfection. Uh, I think if you compared the two, you could definitely read the witch more literally, which is not like a, a a diss on it. It's just like, it's a much more like literal story that you can follow. Right. And that was actually something that I found that was interesting and why I didn't like the lighthouse as much as the witch um, was, is that, the Witch is a movie that lends itself to multiple different interpretations, um, and none of which are necessarily like bad. Oh, no, none of which I would say are like wrong. Like you know, there's the feminist interpretation. There's my preferred one, which is like this is the horror uh, horror of what it was if you lived in an actual Calvinist universe and how awful it is to realize you're damned within that 
uh, framework where there's nothing you can do about it. And then there's also the one where it's like these people are hallucinating because their grain has ergot in it. Uh, like there is, and I'm sure there's some even more ones to that as well. Uh, but you can the the interesting thing about the witch is that all three of these interpretations uh, that I just listed, you can you can find lines. And Robert and uh, Robert Eggers was very clear this like that he didn't that he wasn't going to say what his authoritative interpretation was. It was designed for you to interpret it different ways. The lighthouse. When I first saw it in movie theaters, um, well, I'll let our folks talk. But like, I had one. In, uh, well, what was that? When I first saw it in theaters, I couldn't tell what was reality and what wasn't uh, at at a certain point. It all just blended together, and I couldn't really just like trace a line. When I saw it actually with us, it was a little clearer to me what I think could be like a line. But that might also not be the. But that might also be because I just seen the movie already, and that's not the point of it. So I'm not sure. Uh, but it was. But that at least that first viewing of it that I saw, I by the end of it, it was just like it was harder for me to like get the different stakes that were going on there, because I couldn't really tell when I was in solid space and when I was in dream space, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's something I really liked about it, though. And every time I think about it, I kind of come away from thinking about it differently. Like, today, I think the lighthouse is about this. Tomorrow, I may think it's about something completely different. But that's just, you know, me being the viewer, interpreting the artist's vision in my own warped way. Which, which uh, to I be fair, I think he wants to do that. That it has, what, Greek influence? Oh, completely out the wazoo. Oh, yeah. But I think what what you're talking about though is something that I that I fascinates me about the movie is this, you know, what's real and what isn't as it applies to the two characters, who's gaslighting who, mm. what's yes. real and what isn't. Um, in in my opinion, it, the movie at least is, seems to try to tell me that Willem Dafoe's character is gaslighting Robert Pattinson's. But I think as you think about it and as you rewatch it, you can come away with different interpretations. Yeah. See, that's actually... it definitely comes off that way in the beginning. So, see, that's actually... It's so funny that you say that, Dan, because the first time I watched it, I just couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. And when I watched it with you guys, I actually was coming, thinking like, okay, seeing it again, uh, I think Robert Pattinson... Is going is 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 going nuts on this thing, and that his and that and that like I was thinking that like William Defoe was basically just like playing it straight, if you will. That like that basically this was Robert Pattinson going nuts, and William Defoe is a unkind, unpleasant human being, uh, but was still you know not the one did, but but he wasn't ga- but he wasn't he wasn't gaslighting him. Uh, Bob Patson was just going, going, going nuts. But yeah. again, this was just the second time me, with me watching it, and I don't have a particularly passionate, like, uh, attachment to that interpretation, if that makes sense. Well, and I think if you kind of go jumping off of what you were saying, Barra, um, one other sort of reading I've gotten a lot of it, especially tying into the themes of like Greek mythology, is like. This is his punishment for what happened back in uh, Canada. Like, he's mm-hmm. in his own personal hell for letting that man die. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great interpretation too. Hmm. Tristan, what are, Tristan, what are your thoughts on the different storylines and reality versus non-reality? Well, first of all, I also want to say I think this movie hits especially hard yeah. right now, um, considering how many people are isolated in a small space for an extended period Holy of time. Crap, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, me too. Well done, <laughs> yeah. for, for 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 um, figuring that out. I yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also uh, I want to bring up that I really like that this film was shot in black and white, high contrast, and in such a tight um, aspect ratio, because that aspect ratio, that narrow field, it feels so confining. Especially nowadays, because everyone's used to widescreen TVs and widescreen monitors and, you know, trying to replicate the widescreen movie experience at home, that having a film in those, in that tight square aspect ratio really closes off the space, which again, I think, really helps drive home that sort of isolated, confined, trapped feeling of it. Uh, I really appreciate that you brought that up, Tristan. Uh, mm. Before we started recording, you had said something along the lines of you can't wait to talk about it from <clears throat> a filmmaking standpoint. And I just wanted to say, like, seeing that film in the theaters, despite it being on a big screen, it still felt incredibly claustrophobic. Yeah. They nailed um, it. I also, also really like the choice for the high contrast black and white. It makes it look like an older film, which kind of keeps with the setting but it also lets uh, also let the director really play with light and darkness and shadow uh, which is huge especially considering that one of the main uh, sort of sticky spots in all this is what's in the lighthouse you know the light at the top and how it casts this bright light that leaves everything else in shadow and how uh, Pattinson's character is stuck for most of the film being in the shadow of... Do we ever get their names? Uh, they're both um, Tom. Yeah. They're both Tom. Yeah, that's that's right. That's Yeah, yeah. Thing. so Robert Pattinson's character at the start of the movie uh, goes by Ephraim Winslow, which is the name of the man right. that he let die in the logging accident. Right, and who assumed his... But they're both... Uh, yeah, but they're both Thomases. I think they refer, yeah. uh, towards the end of the film, refer to Willem Dafoe's character as Thomas, and then Robert Pattinson's character as Tom. I, I can't quite remember, but they're both Thomas. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, trying to keep it all straight in my head. Um, but either way, you, but then you have Willem uh, Pattinson's character sort of, who has to sort of live in the shadow of Dafoe's character. You know, Defoe's mm-hmm. character, Defoe's Thomas, is the one who has the privilege of going up to the lighthouse, in up to the top, being there with the light. Whereas Pattinson is forced to toil in the darkness underneath. Yeah, I, I think um, there's also like a certain element of surprise to the black and white filming, and I don't know if this is just me being dumb or if it was intentional. But like, for example, I'm thinking of the scene where he's at the. Um, the water. Uh, oh, and the the well? the well, or I guess not the well, but you know the the cistern, ground, the groundwater. Water. Yeah. No, it's a it's, it's a cistern yeah, specifically. Yeah. Cistern. Thank like you, Vera. It, it, it collects rainwater. 
Yeah. Or is that the cistern? And there's like some goop in the cistern, and like at least for me, like you're not really sure what it is. Is it like some weird substance? Is it is shit? It oil, and then you find out, oh, it's blood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's blood. It's a lot um, of blood. It's a lot of blood. Uh, the other thing I want to touch on is, in addition to all of the Greek mythology and symbolism therein, um, is this also reminded me a lot, especially, you know, it's bad luck to kill a seabird, uh, Rime of the Ancient Mariner? Mm. Anyone? Mm-hmm. Not me. Uh, it, they're, yeah. they're, so, so uh, it's a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem? Take it away, poem. Tristan. All right. Uh, oh yeah, so it's a Samuel. St- oh, go, um, go on, Trist. Uh And it's uh, so it's it's a so Rhyme of the Ancient Mariners. It's like uh, Barrow saying it's a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and basically the setup is there's this wedding party. Um. Or or this. It, this wedding guest, this guy who's going off to a marriage, and he's in a bar, and there's this old mariner at the bar who tells this story of basically how the how he was a crew on this ship that was on this really long journey, and things were things were going well until this big storm came up, and they kind of got stuck at sea, and then this idiot killed an albatross that had been following them and how it basically cursed all of them to a horrible, horrible, slow death out on the ocean. Um, and so, you know, uh, William Defoe's character is very much or at least he wants to put it forward that the uh, persona of this ancient mariner and then we have a dead seabird which causes all of this you know, a killed seabird, which is kind of what sets off this huge descent into madness. So, so I, I'll say this other thing uh, um, about Ryman. Yeah, I was really hoping. Well, we're... I actually that there's another thing which relates to one of my interests that uh, uh, that y'all are familiar with, but Dan has seen seen live. Uh, which is that Iron Maiden actually does a song called "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner" at the end of "Power Slave," uh, which essentially. Um, does the I know most about because it basically go tells tells the tells the Mariner's story, um, and the Mariner is actually the only person who survives uh, on that ship because uh, everyone else dies, but Death decides yes, to uh, to like keep him alive, and then he basically is telling the story so people should like you know like love each other. And so such. he can. Uh, the song slaps, by the way. It's really good. I mean, all the power slave slaps. Yeah, death basically keeps him alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so right with the ancient mariner, it's an albatross, not a seagull, but a seabird, nonetheless. Still- exactly. Yes. Um, so, for so for any of you who who haven't read the poem, but. I recommend you do so afterwards, and you'll see you'll see the connections. Or 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 listen to Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's it's thirteen minutes that you will that you will adore. Yeah. Uh, where's the? 
it's it's it is a very long poem. It's not a you know, it's not a oh, it's like you know, it's not a haiku. <laughs> sure enough, it is not a haiku. It's one of those older, really long freaking poems and I'm looking through because a truly epic poem. Like like uh if this were included in uh, like Lord of the Rings, it's like a song in Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's editor would have been like, "You should probably trim this one." I mean, back for, con- <laughs> for for context, the, the taken. for context, uh, the Iron taken. Maiden song, which work. has probably the most, even though there are like instrumental parts in it, uh, has a lot of has a lot of singing in it. That clocks in at thirteen minutes, and that is just Bruce Dickinson's interpretation of the main story. Uh, so, like. Yeah, I, I don't know how to actually yeah. actually I'll I'll do I'll just see the YouTube what how 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 long it clocks in for someone like reading it aloud on YouTube at this point. Um, uh, oh, it actually clocks in at also thirteen minutes. So, uh, oh, actually wait, no, another one is twenty five. Uh, regardless of which, it's a long poem. But yes, the seabird element does does uh, yeah. does does cross with the with this. Um, another thing is is that uh, what did people think about the history details? Like I am not, I, I'm a history nerd, but I'm not a specialist in that time period. But uh, I did was earlier like last year. I did like uh, date briefly this woman who is uh, who was a specialist in that in that uh, in that period of American history, and uh, she she adored that movie for a lot of its historical details. Um, also, she felt that she was like William Defoe was essentially her spirit animal in that I, movie. I really appreciate that about. Oh, sorry, Vera. Oh no, I'm done. I'm done. I really appreciate that about both of his films is the the level to which he goes for historical accuracy, and it's not that sort of bullshit like, well, we made things awful because that's historically accurate, but like, just it gives it a sense of realness that I really appreciate. Yeah, no, and yeah, I th- one of the things that we should talk about is the acting in the movie. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Dan, and take it away. I think part of it is that these actors, that these actors were thrown into it and accepting of that. Like it feels like a very physical job to act in a lot of this movie. And I think yeah. there's a lot of movies we watch. Like I know Barry, you and I have differing opinions on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that's definitely like an acting an acting movie. And I feel like this is very much an a- actor's acting movie, but I think that stories that you know more interesting, at least for me, and they just do an incredible job. Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we're not going to well, to, to get into totally, but like that's well, and Pattinson's. Well, th- th- that's a movie about actors and acting in Hollywood. This is a movie where just you're you're seeing two, and there's great acting in it. Whereas this is a movie where you're seeing two great actors just acting, but they're not. But the movie isn't about acting. It's just. Clearly, they are. I mean, both are both our Pats uh, and and William Defoe are flexing. And I will say this: uh, after this movie, I am officially on Team Robert Pattinson. I want to see everything you're in. Go, go, Batman, go! <laughs> right, right. I'm so excited for everything he does in the future. Now, yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. And like that guy has some fucking chops. Yeah. Um. And, and and the fact and speaking of Joseph, like you know, it wasn't. It's not just that you're seeing two people just going at it in character, just like in this weird, meat, meaty, tough role. 
but like Robert Pattinson is acting opposite of and equaling the level of William Defoe, who I think we can say is probably one of our finest and also hammiest actors out there. Like to get to his level when he's on is a feat, and he does it on both the level of great acting and of pure hammery. They they just they cast the perfect people for this. I can't imagine this movie with two different actors. I really can't. Tristan, I think you were going to say something. Uh, it it has it has gone for me. Okay. Um, Did it have to do with uh, Jensen Ackles not being cast as Batman? Well, man. No, no, that's that's a different uh, discussion entirely. Well, I'm definitely more excited for the new Batman after seeing this, and I do want to go back and see some of that. Those, like that movie, um, what is it called? Good Time, which is the movie by the directors of or writers and directors of Uncut Gems mm. that Robert Pattinson stars. Mm. And, oh yeah. Um, but I, I will say, for whatever reason, the first time I watched this movie, I wasn't as big on Robert Pattinson's acting for some reason. Like it was good, but it wasn't. Elite, and then I saw it when I saw it the second time with y'all, something clicked. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, he's he's doing a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> but the, some of the scenes are so good that the um, the soliloquy that Defoe gives when they're in the sec- on the second floor. Oh, uh, after drunk. the the lobster thing. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like, you don't, you fancy me lobster, don't you? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that scene was beautiful. It's so good. It's so intense. And then I just, I just love the way it ends. So just, sorry. <laughs> no, your good kid's like, great. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's okay. You're, you're good, bro. It's, everything's fine between us. It's like, I really don't want to get into this with my crazy roommate right yeah. now. Right, exactly. We've, mm. we've all been there. That level of deflation is so real when you just, you know you're in an argument that, like, you just have to bow out. And yeah. You just have to tap out. You're like, okay, fine, fuck it, whatever. I don't want to deal with you anymore. That's completely Robert Pattinson's character in that moment. He's like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Side note, for those, who love lo- for those who love to eat lobster, um, there's a hack that grocery stores don't advertise, but it's great. Whereas is that like you could just ask them to steam the lobster for to to, to steam the lobster for you, um, and it's no extra charge at least uh, at least when I've done it. So, yeah, if you if after seeing this movie you fancy some lobster yeah. but don't want to just like do it, but either don't have a giant pot to kill it in or just don't want to go through that, um, you can have the uh, you can have your supermarket murder it for you and then eat tasty tasty lobster. I only want Willem Dafoe another, to make me lobster. And then you'll fancy it. Another pro tip. You can buy a three pound lobster. You can buy a three pound lobster and raise it into a 50 pound lobster. What? That thing's going to live like forever too. Lobsters are so, fun fact, basically. Yeah. Lobsters don't die of old age. Ever. They, do, they get to the point where they can't molt. And basically get sick and die of that but in order to raise a lobster you'd have to have a tank and they just keep getting bigger but you have to have a saltwater tank 
right? Yeah, I got a thing of kosher salt. <laughs> you can ask DLC to be I, I got a thing of kosher salt. Works, I got purified water. That's all I need. <laughs> you know what, Tristan, do you have a second bathtub in your house? That might work. Yes, actually. There you go. Tristan's Lobster Farm. <laughs> Come on down. Go get him. So, one thing that we haven't talked... You have to fight him first. <laughs> you can only eat him if you can beat him in hand-to-hand <laughs> combat. Did you just say clombat? Hand-to-claw oh combat. Clawbat! Uh... Hand claw so combat. that I think our reader, our, our listeners, what we may want to go into, and I'm happy to take it or someone else to, is that um, I think people may be a little confused about why we aren't talking as much about like the general overall plot, and I think that uh, and I I think that that's deliberate in that like it's one of the few movies where it's is that once you sell the basic say the basic premise, which is as we said, which is you know. Two people are on a lighthouse in the middle of New England in the 19th century in the middle of the ocean, living with each other, and then they go, and then weird stuff happens. Uh, it's hard to really go beyond that just because at that point you're getting into interpretation. Well, well and then they're... Yeah, completely. Well, well, they're stuck... So two people are trapped on a small island tending a lighthouse in 19th century New England... And then their relief boat doesn't show up. Ever. And weird shit starts happening. That, I think. And they start really advertise going. Not the movie, which I guess it wouldn't be. Is that is how horny it is? Yeah. Oh my god, this movie's so horny. <laughs> so this horny. Movie's so horny. Yeah. I'm so sorry for not warning people about how horny like, it was I, when we watched I, it. The first time I saw it, I didn't even notice in the scene where he's trying to spy on the lighthouse. He's trying to spy on Willem Dafoe's character in the lighthouse, and like this, <laughs> this, 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 yeah. uh, you know, this, this fluid, fluid, like, you know, drips and oozes in the foreground. <laughs> well, there's there's yeah. so many moments of like stuff about just like masturbation in general. Like he's working on fixing the roof tiles and sees Willem Dafoe like masturbating in bed. Yeah, or like. It's so horny. Wait, he was jerking. I thought he just was farting. Guys, I understand. I'm pretty sure he was jerking off. And I and I thought he was uh, fucking that hole in the in the like from the very beginning of the movie. There's a hole that Robert Pattinson finds, and he pulls the um, the mermaid statue out statuette out of it. Oh, yeah. I thought he was fucking that hole. Oh wow! I mean, it, it could be that too. It could be that too, yeah. So, I understand. You know, you're on a remote island. You're stuck away. You got needs, but it's just, just mermaids, man. They are bad karma. I have a fun fact about that mermaid's vagina. If you want to hear it, Definitely. you see a you see a mermaid's uh, vagina. Is it based on a shark's or a, a shark's? Dolphin's? Yes, you see a mermaid's yeah. vagina, and it's based on shark vaginas. Yep. Amazing. That's my fun uh, mermaid vagina fact for the day. Tune in next week. <laughs> yeah, and disturbing... Distur- tune in tune tune, to our next episode of the spoiler cast after yeah, dark. Disturbing uh, shark vagina aside, um, the mermaid is an interesting combination of being like beautiful. I mean, like the upper half is really of this gorgeous woman, but also really eerie and terrifying, even outside of the vagina thing, because like, like she doesn't talk. She's like, it's like when she... When she opens her mouth, it's like uh, 
it's it, it, it's like a sea mammal sound. Uh, it's a really cool. It's like a siren screaming. Exactly. It's a really cool interpretation. <laughs> and again, you're not sure if the mermaid is real or not, but it's but it like burrows into your head. Um, just as you're also not sure about like whether his previous companion went or whether he really is being used to feed the lobsters. Um, well, Barry, yeah. you were talking about the how you know there isn't really much more to say about like the actual ending and spoiling the movie, but I, I'd be curious to get yours and the rest of the group's interpretation cast. on the ending, like the very end of the movie. Yeah, um, uh, Ali, what did you think we about our, it? We see our Robert Pattinson open up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, first of all, that, wow, despite being in black and white, it was really fucking gross seeing our pets getting his internal organs eaten by seagulls. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it just, like... Which presumably happens forever. Yeah, well, because, again, it's playing into that whole Greek mythology thing of Prometheus and the light. Yep. I was also just reminded of, um, one of my favorite quotes from the series Metalocalypse is when um, Nathan Explosion is sitting on a couch with a tape recorder trying to come up with song ideas and what he comes up with is uh, a guy gets murdered and that happens uh, forever and I'm just like yep yep that's what popped into my mind because I love that show because he's getting his intestines and innards eaten by seagulls uh, but he is still very much obviously at that point at least alive yeah, he's as it's happening feeling everything that's happening to him also his eyes are being pecked out yep. too what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah his eyes mm -hmm. are being pecked I mean it's a whole some, it's a whole thing. Nasty business. So uh, I, I want to say one thing in terms of the Greek. Which why I kind of, I'm, I guess if you had to ask me, I put a little more stake, I guess, in the concept that this is like, this is our Pat's eternal hell for what he's done. Mm -hmm. So here's the here's Previously the flip side. In his life here's is to be like Prometheus and. Yes, Barra? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that um, uh, the one thing on that in terms of, like, the the Greek interpretation and the Prometheus analogies in terms of this being a thing of punishment, the one thing that puts into it is that Prometheus in Greek mythology is actually is a hero in that, like, his stealing of fire for the gods isn't done for selfish reasons. Uh, it's done to give it to humanity so humans can, like, cook their food and warm themselves at night and have light. It's like, a, he's a hero, but because he steals fire from the gods, he's then punished by being chained to a rock, and then Zeus's eagle eats his liver out um, for all eternity and or until Hercules comes and uh, kills the eagle and, uh, and, frees, and frees Prometheus, which I think may have been a later addition to the, to the situation, um, to the story. Fucking Zeus. Yeah, man. no, the the Greek gods are the you know they are they are capricious, um, but so it's so in terms of like I, so so there Deucious. is that imagery that comes from it, but at the same time Robert Pattinson is 
really different for a Prometheus figure is that he's very selfish, or, 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 selfish, oh, and he's selfish. He's se and he's self-absorbed, and uh, and he's self-indulgent. Whereas is that um, the character where that's analogous to is does is punished for a selfless act uh, and for being a champion of people who uh, or for of of all humanity. So I know it's 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 just an it, uh, it, it's an interesting uh, it, it's a it's an interesting flip with that because it's yeah. it's not a full analogy if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I think that's part of what makes it uh, borrowing from Greek themes so interesting is like exactly like you said, Bear, in that story, we feel sympathy for Prometheus because he's just trying to do something good, whereas Robert Pattinson is completely selfish. Yeah, and a, a part of me wonders too. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Um, back to your point earlier, Ali. But the I want, part of me wonders if this is his eternal hell because the growth named Tommy or Thomas, and like the other version, and Willem Dafoe is like almost another version of him or something like that, calling him out for the type of person he is. Um, but that was just my like interpretation. I like that a lot. I've seen that kind of floating around, but haven't done much. Uh, thinking on it but i really like that dan yeah i i feel there has to be some some significance to the fact that both characters are named tom in the end um i think that's a, a very good tie-in to that a perfectly logical explanation is that they are one and the same person but two sides right. of them mm -hmm. well especially there's a lot of contention between them where um you know, older Thomas keeps referring to the younger one in like a really condescending, almost childish manner, and mm -hmm. he's like, "Stop that! I'm a fucking adult. Treat me like it." Like he's demanding a lot of opportunities for responsibilities and to tending to the lighthouse itself and to the light. And older Thomas is like, "No, you you can't. You're like an idiot and young, and you wouldn't understand." And that's my job. It's my responsibility. Well, I think you're an idiot. It, you're young. You killed somebody. You you you, you know yeah. you're unfit for this, that, or the other thing. You're going crazy. I mean, I think that another uh, another factor into I really like thinking you apparently about don't it that like way, lobster. Though. Then why'd you come to New England? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Tristan. Oh, I was just gonna say, you you don't like lobster, but you're in New England. What up with that? Crab is better. You know? Oh, shots fired. <laughs> that makes me see... Allie, that makes me think that you have truly... Oh, wait a second. You probably had a loyalty to Crab even before you came to the Virginia, Maryland area. Correct? Because of the Dungeness Crab stuff on the West Coast? Yes. Yeah. Which I've never had Dungeness Crab, so I don't know mm -hmm. if it's good or not. Shit's good. <laughs> oh, so good. Dungeness crab is pretty damn good, I will say. But that it's 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 the West Coast versus the East Coast. You yeah. know, West Coast you got the Dungeness crab, water spider. East Coast you got the lobster. Well, I water have spider. had. I mean, I like lobster. They're both water but spiders. I prefer crab. Well, I have had stone crab in the Keys, and that's delicious. Also, they got soft shell crabs here, and they're so. Oh, good. soft shell crabs are dope. I had one. I had a soft shell crab sandwich when I used to when I lived in New Orleans, and I went to Jazz Fest and. That shit was great. It was just like a whole crab. I'll be right back, guys. My mouse died. 
and it was like on on some bread with a little bit of sauce and pickles. I was like, Mwah! yes, yes. Yeah. And when we went to Cape May for our trip last summer, I I ate so much shellfish. Mm. Yeah. It was delightful. This place yep. called Captain Jack. Here I am at my little Rhode Island. Defending stuffies and clam cakes. Dude. Hey, stuffies you know are great. It's fine. I love food. Stuffies are, like, there's there's nothing to, there's no shame on, I, I am a stand for Rhode Island food. Like, living there for two years made me just, I honestly think that pound for pound, yeah. Rhode Island has one of the best cuisines in the fucking country. And, uh, yeah, especially, like, I know, there's a lot of good food in Boston, too, but especially when you factor in how fucking affordable most of the food in, in Rhode Island is, even the even the fancy stuff, like, don't step to it. Never never try to put baby in a corner. Providence and Pawtucket are queens. Respect them. I think, I think that Rhode Island destroys Boston and Massachusetts food. Yeah, I would agree with that. Those two states. I, I, I think I, Rhode Island, I, I agree. Yeah. It's, like, one of the best food spots in the country yeah it's just because so much different ethnic food and also the fresh seafood and also again like just like to hammer it in it's just like it yeah. doesn't break your wallet to buy to eat there <laughs> you could actually just like go out and like not be like ah, oh, well am i cutting it too close it's like you know you can just enjoy i can yeah. would uh, but yeah no this the right. the, the new england the but to, to, to wrap back to the uh, to wrap back to the lighthouse, the New Englandy portion of this is is huge, uh, and it is interesting too. Where it's just like, well, where or William Defoe? Oh, that's what it was. Uh, so Robert Pattinson asked for more responsibility. At the same time, also William Defoe keeps on asking Robert Pattinson for respect. Like, basically, it's like, listen to my stories, you know, like, you know, embrace this culture of being a seafarer, like, you know, respect me as this old, old salt. And Robert Pattinson is just a skeptical shit and refuses to respect him and refuses to <laughs> yeah. indulge him. And whether he's justified or not, that's another set, that's another punch of tension. Because it's not just that William Defoe is just like saying, oh, no, you can't do these things and I'm not going to respect you. It's just like, Robert Pattinson doesn't respect him in turn, and he also doesn't really respect that he has anything to uh, to contribute to him. Um, yeah. That scene, by the way, that was really intense, and maybe it's just because like I've had my share of bad bosses, um, was where like he's. But maybe it's also because he did indeed do a crappy job, um, and I was just sympathizing with Robert Pattinson, where like William Defoe is like saying that uh, it's just like complaining about how he's cleaned the floor and Robert said since yeah. that he swabbed it twice he's like you haven't swabbed it twice <laughs> I don't know maybe it was just me but it really that really spoke to me in terms of right. just like Ugh. yeah this is this is a all too familiar feeling when like you know you put your work into something and then your boss is just like going at you regardless yeah no he definitely like just I think there are definitely points where he, Willem, like, uses our past to just, as a punching bag for whatever shit he's dealing with in his own head. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but then the other question is, has to be asked, right? Did he actually swap it twice over? Or does yeah. he just think he did or, you know, have some 
you know, view of himself that's different than the reality. So yeah, I agree. I, I mean, that when I watched I've it, definitely yeah, been a young twenty-something yeah. doing a job that I think I'm doing. Eh, whatever, it's fine. I'm done. And then I have somebody ask me to do it again, and I'm like, "But I did it already." God. I have two, like, and that's it could totally and that's, be that. But but that's but yeah, and I've had that too, and that's why when I watched the movie both times, that's the perspective I came out of is. He did do the job. Why are you complaining and asking him to do it a third time? But when I think about it outside of the scope of the movie or outside of the movie, I think differently. Like, oh, well, you know, who knows who's telling the truth here? So, right, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, and, and all. And we haven't or, even. I haven't even brought up the uh, the scary term for what this movie is probably really about. Gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Go on, Allie, as you um, like the match of the internet. <laughs> or, I just, I just, really quick. Is? Re- really quick. Before we leave, um, before we leave, what if he did swap it twice, but because this is Pattinson's character's eternal hell, what if it just undid all of his hard work? I mean, it could be that. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that's 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 not a bad interpretation like, cleans either. it, leaves, it just turns itself as soon as it closes the door. Just be like, haha, fuck you. Again, that's why I love this movie so much. Is it's it's not just one thing happening. There's so much going on, but it it never feels like. Um, sometimes when you watch something and there's a lot happening, it can be overwhelming to the point where I don't care. But this never made me feel like that. I was like, wow, there's a lot going on, and I'm stressed, and what's happening? But I've ne- I have never at any point in the film thought, well, I've checked out now because I don't know what the fuck's happening. Right. Allie, did you want to go into any more of like the comparisons to toxic masculinity? Oh, God. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I came a little bit. It's just, um, I mean, it's something that I look at a lot in times in movies. Not like a, ooh, I'm looking for this on purpose, but it's just something I notice, especially when you have a film where literally the only female character may or may not have been real and was literally a sexual object. A terrifying sexual A terrifying sexual sexual object, object, and uh, I want to be her when I grow up. (laughs) But nonetheless, like, what toxic masculinity does to us, or I guess, you know, to people who are masculine and or men especially like like there's sort of a a weird level of intimacy at the same time that Willem Dafoe's character expresses towards Robert Pattinson that definitely makes him really uncomfortable especially when they almost kiss and I fucking shrieked (laughs) when that happened in the theater how like they came so close to fucking kissing each other I was livid that it didn't happen so here's something I'm gonna throw out there um, to folks, how would this movie have been different if indeed they had kissed or had sex at any point? I think there would have been a lot of shame. Yeah. On both their parts. Yeah. I think they would have felt really horribly about it. Mm. And I you know because of the time I, I don't think things i don't think things would have turned out well no i don't think it would have turned out well i don't think that would have 
changed anyone's inevitable fate. It would have fate. been an interest, but it would have also but been another... But at the another... same time, maybe that's what they needed. Like, that's the thing. Maybe that's what they needed in the end, was like, you know, teehee some kind of release. I mean... And because they weren't acting a... on it when it's clearly something they both wanted from each other, then they come undone. Wait, you think that it was pretty clear that they both wanted to have sex with each other, <laughs> Ellie? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just. I'm overthinking, probably. No, uh, but I, I don't think you're necessarily overthinking. I. I, th- I mean, like I, I didn't necessarily get that interpretation per se, but there was also clear that they. It was very clear that they were very horny, and also that they were in need of release. And yeah, there was like this, like. If that if Robert Eggers had decided, yeah, I one, don't think like they were interested in each other romantically or inherently sexually. But I did definitely still get sexual tension, and I think that they looked at each other as an object to fulfill some kind of desire. Exactly, and if the if Robert Eggers had had them kiss or had had them have a do a sex to sexual acts with each other, I don't think it would have been out of character for the movie whatsoever. I don't think so either. I don't think it would have made things better for them. No, it wouldn't have. But I think it would have really changed the atmosphere. And I also just like to look at everything with, like, a very gay lens. Yeah, no, I, I think that's... Just in general. No, for sure. And I, In the media that I consume. No, no, and I, I think that this is probably also a good example, which, you know, I of that, you know, just because um, there is... A, just because there is sexual tension... And because there is the opportunity for people to to have to fulfill themselves in the same sex so same sex manner doesn't necessarily mean that them acting on those desires is going to be good because or at least for the way those not because it's same sex desire of course but because these are two toxic people who I feel like are looking at each other as potential sexual release and not as friends and lovers and romantic partners. Uh, like it would if they kissed or had sex it would have been very much each of them using the other and i'm not even saying non-consensual it would have been consensual using which is yeah people could have consensual sex and they're still both using the using one another um oh completely yeah and not respecting and not and not and not doing it in a respecting and loving manner yeah it's 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 incredibly the relationship that they have is incredibly toxic exactly to your point, Vera, like, I'm also curious, like, what the reception to the movie would have been had they kissed, like, how different it would have been. It would have overshadowed the point. People would have been, like... Forums, discussions, things like that. Robert... To me. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. It would have overshadowed it. That's what I was trying to lead to. (laughs) No, but it's true, like, Robert... It would have been Robert Eggers' gay lighthouse movie. It would have... Which, he would have been like, that's not the point. These people aren't gay. Right. And, but they're like, but they are two men who kissed. Right. How can you say they're not gay? And then, and maybe I'm just giving Robert Eggers, like, credit for nuance. I don't know him in person. But I'd like to hope that Robert Eggers would would have been, like, again, try, uh, trying to push against them. Being like, no, this is about a toxic relationship. And the two people in it happen to be two men. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it would have just distracted from from the art unfortunately um at least in terms of the discourse it makes me think of um and forgive me for any naivete 
this might uh, show on my part, but it makes me think of growing up, I had heard stories of people in the military, like, having affairs with each other, like, men, but then coming home from their service being like, well, I'm not gay. Like, we had sex, but that doesn't mean I'm gay. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, there's a, it's a condition. I think there's some element of that to it. Environmental, I think it's, like, called environmental homosexuality, with the, with, um, with in the absence of partners of the opposite sex, um, people will some people will have who are maybe not necessarily inclined to same sex attraction will sometimes have romantic art partners of the same sex. And but when opposite sex partners are available, they'll do that. I mean, unfortunately, this also sometimes will happen in other institutions too. Like for instance, um, uh, women's colleges is another example. Um, where that can all ha- can also sometimes be the case, and that can also yeah. be a combination of like mm-hmm. opportunity, like you know you're stuck on a ship for a long time, and then there really isn't anything, so you decide to have sex with your friend, um, and then you guys both go your separate ways and marry uh, marry women, and then just you know still hang out at each other at barbecues, and it's just that was just a thing we did, or it can also be where there is like you generally do fall in love with somebody. Um, but then, because of your own inherent homophobia, and when you're out out of that environment, you then decide to not continue that relationship or not to pursue same-sex attraction anymore. So I think it's a mm-hmm. I I feel uh, and again, this is something that I've never experienced, but it's a uh, I think it's definitely uh, it's a very real thing that that can happen and uh, can either be an indication of like actual feelings of of love of of say of, of say feelings of same sex attraction, they're going to be outside of that context, or feeling or stuff that really isn't going to be strong when you're when you are, have partners where you're more where you are more inclined to. Yeah. Anyways, sorry for just going off. Thank you for uh, allowing me to talk about the gay agenda in the lighthouse. Yeah, I mean, this you, has been my TED talk. You could always <laughs> talk about the gay agenda, Ali, um, and the toxic masculinity. Yay! Well, then you need to watch She-Ra. Because <laughs> She-Ra is the gay agenda made form. And it's great. And <laughs> Anything, uh, any other topics or points on Lighthouse? Triss, uh, you... Also, lighthouses are very phallic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this movie has so much, like, sex stuff in it, and it's crazy. Well, I mean, you know what they say, beggars can't be choosers. But, uh... I mean, William but, Defoe... But Eggers um, can be choosers? <laughs> I'm gonna see who Robert Eggers' <laughs> oh wife God, or girlfriend Tristan. or husband is. <laughs> One moment. <laughs> Alright, while we're waiting on that, while we're <laughs> waiting on that, um... God. Um... I'm sorry, I just can't write. It's okay. It's been a weird, weird week. You just listened to me ramble about how the lighthouse is actually, like, incredibly homoerotic for, like, ten minutes. It's fine. But but it is. I mean, mean, to be fair, they are basically fighting over a giant phallus. Oh, my... See? Thank you. Tristan gets it. They're fighting over a giant dick. No... There <laughs> and the tip glows. 
<laughs> and the tinfoil comes off. No, it, the whole movie is very, very. De- yeah. The, oh my god, it's the mermaid. Inc- <laughs> the mermaid could be the shadow of heterosexuality taunting him, tempting him back. I love you, Tristan. Wait, have you also been at your house for three months now without seeing the outside world? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm perfectly fine. Uh, so, uh, so I, I uh, thought about that the other day. We're coming up on the three-month anniversary of, yeah. of basically working from home and being uh, stuck at home most of the time. Yeah, oh. I miss hanging out with you guys. I'm going to be real. When we can safely do that, uh, yeah, it's going to be great. We gotta. I had to stop uh, by the so, craft store the other week to pick some stuff up, and I like legit almost cried when I talked to other human yeah. beings in person. Aww. Uh, I've got a. Uh, so for those of you who know about my spicy tequila, um, I've put a whole batch of my silver spicy tequila into my oak barrel, Ew. and I've been aging it up this whole time to turn it into a reposado. I'm saving that for when we can finally celebrate actually being able to hang out with people Yay. again. Nice. Uh, so, awesome. uh, Robert Eggers uh. is married to a um, uh, to a very to to a to a very attractive black-haired, spooky-looking lady. So, yeah, he I I think that he can be choosers, and I think he chose wisely. I like it. Um, <laughs> they have a kid, so go Robert Eggers. <laughs> <laughs> We had to answer. What next terrifying New England movie are you going to make? I I'm all about it. Well, gosh, what if I should become an extra all right, on all that? Right. Hold on, hold on. We need to find another spooky New England horror movie to watch for our next one. Considering we've already just did Color Out of Space, which takes place in Western Mass. And now I mean, you can just pick anything uh, from Stephen King. It's his his life's work is just Maine. <laughs> Everything in Maine, basically. Let's just watch Misery basically. next. That's in Col- that's in oh, Colorado hey. though, isn't it? So, oh, that's right. Oh, um, you're right. It is. So, speaking of uh, sharks eating people, I totally forgot that Jaws is set off of the mass on an island off the yeah, it's coast a of Massachusetts. Movie. The original one. Yep. Yeah. Martha's Vineyard Horror Films presents the shark. So, so we could do we could do a double feature and talk about Jaws and talk about. Um, oh, Man-Eater. that would be good. I also kind of want to save that for Shark Week, though. Wait, when Shark Week this week? Oh, we should totally do. Hold on, I will use my Google food to figure that out. It's good stuff. <laughs> Oh man! When is Shark Week? It's like it turns out it's like next week. Yeah. Hmm. What date is Shark Week? Twenty twenty. Oh, it was back in April. Uh, what? I thought Shark Week was always uh, in the summer. Me? It totally used to just be in the summer. I always thought of it as a summer what? thing too. Once now, once more around the sun. Yeah. Well, fine. We don't need Shark Week to justify our poor decisions. Yeah, we'll we'll make our own Shark Week, okay? <laughs> With blackjack and hookers. And we'll call it Shark Week too. Or you know what? I agree. 
You know, and you know what? Forget the blackjack. <laughs> Just sharks and hookers. That's all we need. All right. Possibly mermaids. Any, uh, any other lighthouse thoughts? Uh, no. This is a great movie. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that we all liked it and recommend it. Hmm. Yeah, right. definitely check it out. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> okay, now how did you think? Oh, the movie was terrible. <laughs> it wasn't gay enough. <laughs> I'm gonna boycott this movie now. There weren't enough penises. <laughs> there were so many penises. There were only like four. What's I mean, up with that? There was so much masturbation. Yeah, like Robert Pattinson jacking it in that in the in the in, in what in like the Foghorn House kind of iconic, like. Man, did he abuse... Man, was the self-abuse strong in that one. I, uh... it. I want to just say real quick, I'm so sorry to my friend Gabby especially for not... Who watched the movie with us for not warning her about all the sex stuff. (laughs) I'm sorry, and I love you. I am so sorry. Can that be like a new variation on Clue, Vera? Uh, Robert Pattinson jacking it? In the Foghorn House. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) With the mermaid statue. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I found it in a hole. Oh, boy. Great. Alrighty. Well, I guess we'll... um, Tristan, you you already sort of had the promotional floor because you were talking about your tequila. I'll be done in about ten minutes, great one. My tequila, which I can't sell... So, um, Tristan, is there anything else that you want to pipe up? Yes. Uh, so if you want to keep watching me play uh, the wonderful 101 Remastered, as well as suffer, basically, through uh, Rainbow Six Siege and other games, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash the underscore millennialist. Link is also on our website, which is spoilermedia.net. Um, Bear, anything you wanted to promote? Um, just as per usual, um, uh, the uh, you know I write for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, so certainly go and uh, support your local newspaper and consider reading that, and also following me on the Twitters at, at Bear I Do Now. Uh, I wrote an article about a 52-inch tall asparagus that was still good and hadn't flowered out, uh, which is apparently very unusual. Um, so. Uh, that article was so good. <laughs> thank you, Allie. I'm glad you appreciated that. Um, did, it's 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 nothing. It's not I put nothing. Put a good. smile on my face when I really needed one. Aww. I liked it. I I, I try, um, but yeah, no. So please, if you feel like read my definitely read my journalism <laughs> and support your local journalists and uh, certainly also, and I'm sure we'll also get to that thing. We didn't. This is trying to be a, a rain of sunshine into uh, into a pretty dark moment at the moment. But you know, like there's unfortunately a lot of suffering in this country that is coming to light right now so uh yeah do what you can within your uh w- within your value set and your means but uh it is certainly a, a time to, to to help your fellow mm-hmm. human beings right specifically those human beings who are on the oppressed yes. side mm-hmm. yes yes don't go helping white supremacists. Use your resources for good. It should be obvious what is good, but if it's not, don't. Like Tristan said, not the white supremacists. Uh, but, but Tristan, I said help your fellow yeah. human beings. 
<laughs> oh! Your fellow human beings. I mean, right? I know, so they can sometimes look like but human beings. The so crucial don't difference. be fooled. I do not. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Ali, uh, what do you want to promote? Uh, well, I already gave my TED talk on why the lighthouse is gay, so I think I'm good here. Alrighty. But, but what about Death Blossoms? <laughs> we can find, um, uh... Uh, Death Blossoms, as always, deathblossoms.gg. You can find my personal Twitter, Twitch stuff on Spoiler Media, just like Tristan's. And just, uh, I'm gonna go out with this. Be a good egg. Don't be a bad apple, as they would say on Dark Poutine. Mm. Couldn't agree more, Allie. Couldn't agree more. And with that, I think we'll we'll sign off um, and say, until next time, it's been a lot of fun. Stay safe and help those who are oppressed. Amen to that. <laughs>